Last year, one of my favorite Sound Judgment guests, Laura Joyce Davis of Shelter in Place, recommended Kelly Corrigan as her dream guest for Sound Judgment. Who's that, I asked. Laura was kind. She didn't laugh at me for living under a rock because I should have known. Kelly Corrigan has written four remarkable memoirs, each of which was a New York Times bestseller. Between her podcast, Kelly Corrigan Wonders, and her PBS show, Tell Me More, she's interviewed authors, actors, philanthropists, and leaders of all kinds. Everyone from Katie Couric and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg to Melinda Gates, Annie Lamott, Michael Lewis, Margaret Atwood, and famed human rights attorney Brian Stevenson. The list goes on and on and on. So, of course, I checked her out. And what I heard, I loved. Kelly Corrigan is blunt but compassionate, serious and funny, a straight shooter with heart and soul who is deeply curious about how we can tackle the world's biggest problems while also noticing the smallest of details and delights. She became my dream guest. And so for this last episode before our holiday break, I'm delighted to be able to bring her to you. We can all learn how to be better interviewers from Kelly, but also better practitioners of curiosity and of wonder. This is Sound Judgment, where we investigate just what it takes to become a beloved audio storyteller by pulling apart one episode at a time together. I'm Elaine Appleton-Grant. blown away to learn that podcasts don't just make listeners aware of the brands that make them or feel a little better about them, but that a whopping 61% of listeners who consume branded podcasts feel better about the brands than non-listeners. If you make podcasts for organizations, this kind of information about your podcast will help you keep your clients happy and renewing another season. You can learn exactly how, when, and why to survey your listeners with a free four-part email series from our sponsor, Signal Hill Insights. Go to measureyourpodcast.com to sign up. That's measureyourpodcast.com. And stick around to the end of my conversation with Kelly Corrigan for part three of my fascinating interview with Signal Hill's Paul Reismandel. Oh, and if you need help with your branded podcast, contact us here at Podcast Allies. We help mission-driven organizations reach your audiences with top-quality podcasts as part of your communication strategy. The link's in our show notes. And now to my interview with Kelly. HuffPost, a while ago, called you the Poet Laureate of the Ordinary. Would you describe yourself that way? I mean, I must say, I liked the way it sounded because I am kind of wowed by the ordinary. I mean, I am a person who ex- who is often in a state of wonder. I mean, that's why the podcast is called Kelly Corrigan Wonders, I, which is to say like uh, the verb wonders, like I'm curious and I ask people a lot of questions, but also I am often in a state of wonder. And I can find it easily and I sort of credit 10 years of working in nonprofits for helping me appreciate sort of these ordinary luxuries. Like I, I, honest to God, like almost every time I get into bed, I think this is so fantastic. Like these sheets are clean, this pillow's soft, I'm warm, you know, and now I'm in New York City. So I walk home from dinner 
and I pass people who are not going to sleep in a bed. And I think I, I am so happy to be in this bed right now. I do think that there is a tendency to squander these very ordinary moments of wonder. And I think from a writing perspective that I have always enjoyed most telling the smallest conceivable story. So like there's a tiny, tiny moment where uh, my whole family got in a big fight and everybody disappeared, you know, we were teenagers. And, and I thought, oh God, you know, like when are we gonna get glued back together? And I hate this and I thought it was gonna be easier. Georgia was in the shower and I went up and I thought, oh, maybe I'll just, you know, put a nice towel in the shower for her and, you know, wait in my bedroom and see if she wants to come in and do a little repair as mothers and daughters need to do. And I heard her singing in the shower, all the single ladies, all the single ladies. And I thought, oh, I guess it's all okay. I mean, if your kid's singing in the shower, there's, there's something's fundamentally okay about their lives. So in that sense, like it was an incredibly ordinary moment. Everyone has sung in the shower and everyone's overheard someone singing in the shower. But there was a, a profoundness to it that for me was super soothing in a way that all parents need to be soothed, especially on the heels of an explosion. So in that sense, like being the poet laureate of the ordinary, like I do think there's a lot of awesome, awe-inspiring ordinariness available to us. And I think that we squander those opportunities at our own peril. I am absolutely positive that you're right, that we squander those opportunities often, maybe most of the time. You know, it's so funny. I was, I was going to say at the outset, Kelly, that I wanted this to be a conversation. Mm -hmm. And yet... I am not one to actually usually make it that much of a conversation because I sort of, I don't know, maybe it's like nobody's looking at me. They don't want to hear my story. But I will tell you a story about that was that I um, am a cancer survivor like you. And I was young. I was about 28. Mm. And I had had surgery. And I woke up and it's like 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm in the hospital. And this nurse was like this, I'm a very small person. And she was she was a very large woman. And she was like one of those people who you could imagine like wrapping her arms around you and you would just feel better, like just her presence in the room. I still remember this, this decades ago. And I was okay. And she said, I hope you remember what this feels like and that you're so grateful. I'm going to get choked up talking about it. You're so great, you know, that you really are grateful to have your life and so that you appreciate that, you know. And I think about that every now and then in that, like, you know, you get frustrated in traffic or somebody, I don't know, takes a project away or you owe a bill or, you know, it's messy in the house, whatever it is. You've had a fight with your kid. I think it's hard to hang on to, honestly. I, th I think it is too. And I think probably there are scientists who could prove that it's hard to hold on to. And I think there are anthropologists who could tell you that there's an evolutionary reason that it's hard to hold on to. Mm -hmm. Like you can't linger on the savannah thinking about how right. great it was that that lion didn't get you because there's another one behind another tree and you got to stay alert. But I, <laughs> I have had that same sense, that same like crystalline awareness and I've also experienced the fade. 
I've also experienced the return to the trivial. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe as we age, the best we could do is try to hold it for a little bit longer each time, like hold the, hold the awareness, hold the gratitude. I have specific, really specific memories of being, I was 36, I was in chemo and surgery and whatnot for a couple of years there. And during that time, my husband, who was kind of new to me, you know, I got married when I was 32 when I was 36 when all this was happening, mm. turned out to be a real prince. You know, he was, he was kind of good at what we were going through. And then when it was over, he turned into a regular guy again. And he totally bugged me and I totally bugged him. And, and I remember thinking like, oh, right, like we're just not going to be able to freeze these insights and keep them present with us. It's going to revert to the mean uh, behaviorally and emotionally and, and so be it you know, hold it lightly, but it's not a bad thing, I think, to have been ill early on and have access to the thing you described and the thing that that nurse was trying to underline for you, which is it's really hard to feel your life. It's really hard to remember how much you want to be here. I've, I do find this really interesting because you've written four memoirs, all of them bestsellers, yeah. about family life. And at the same time, in Kelly Corgan Wonders, you seem really fascinated by exploring big, sometimes abstract ideas. Tell me about your fascination with these very big, consequential ideas. I mean, I think that it's important to be able to toggle between the moves in your individual life and the state of society. I mean, part of what I'm doing is trying to make your listening or viewing or reading minutes actually worth it. Like the, the thing that you and I are asking for when we put stuff out there is attention. And like, what could be a more exquisite currency than attention? I mean, in this world where there is so much coming at you, to ask for that is like asking for someone's soul. I mean, you are asking for the most precious thing that they've got. And what I'm thinking all the time when I'm going to these larger abstract places, I'm leaving kind of the poet laureate, poet laureate of the ordinary space and going into something more societal is how can I be worth your minutes of attention? How could I tell you something or reveal something or elicit something from another person that would actually make you feel at the end of the experience that was definitely worth my time? Because that's mm -hmm. the thing I want people to say. I want people to say, I'm so glad I listened to that. I watched that. I read that. What does it feel like for you when it's clicking? When I'm saying something I haven't said before? or when I know that they are saying something they haven't said before. Like a really hard thing about interviewing people who have been interviewed a lot is that they have go-to sound bites. They have their greatest hits. They're really good at telling them. I mean, listen, I've done four national book tours. When I go to present a new book, I have my greatest hits. Like I develop a story and I tell the story town to town. 
therefore, the juiciest part of any reading is Q&A. Because something can happen that hasn't happened before. And ironically, you can be interviewing someone who's been interviewed a lot. You know they're giving you their greatest hits because you've done all your preparation. You can't get them off it. It's very disappointing. I feel like I'm failing. And yet, some other part of you is like, this is going to be a good episode. Like for people who haven't listened to this person on 10 other podcasts, they're going to love this because the Mm -hmm. person's really good. Like they've really got their razzle dazzle going. They have these great anecdotes. They know how to tell the story beginning, middle and end. They've got a punchline. They know when to stop talking. You know, there's an expertise that develops Mm. in guesting. And so it's, it's like both parts of me are hyper aware. The, the disappointed part uh-huh. of me that's like, I'm not getting anything fresh. We're not off script. And people are going to like this. Like, th- it's interesting content. They're a really good talker. What's an example of one of your episodes that you just think of off the top of your head, just an intuitive hit, where somebody told you they hadn't said something before, or you found yourself saying something you hadn't said before? I mean, 90% of the time, something like that happens. Like, it's happening right now. I have never talked about this very specific problem Uh that I often have before on a microphone. I've told my husband Uh about it. You know, like when I finish an interview, he's like, how'd you do? I'm like, I couldn't couldn't get them off their talking Mm -hmm. points. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the more professional they are, Samantha Power is a great example. So Samantha Power is the head of USAID. She was the UN ambassador under Obama. She's a great thinker. She won a Pulitzer for her writings. She's devoted to making the world a better place. She's one of the most impressive people I've ever met. And she's constricted by her job. Like she has a big public job where there's people who work for her or who cover her press and they want to talk to me beforehand and they want to make sure it's going to stay on the rails and we're going to cover this and cover that and I'm, I'm not along and, you know, I, I will satisfy the requirements, but it doesn't mean I'm going to stop there. And then the other thing about somebody like Samantha or Pete Buttigieg or even Brian Stevenson is their their time is constrained. So you, it's not mm-hmm. like this, lux, this luxurious situation where I can spend an hour and a half with Samantha Power. Like I'm between meetings for her in the middle of a huge day where she's going to be like coming up with money for Darfur and giving policy position suggestions to Biden on Syria and, 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 and. And so getting the best version of the scripted celebrity, the razzle-dazzle is fine if that's the best that can happen. But honestly, fine is disappointing. Kelly wants more. She wants the human story. But with Samantha Power, could she get there? Maybe, because of the way she got Samantha to come onto the show in the first place. Kelly tried the proper channels. Nothing doing for months. Then her daughter Claire went to college. And on her bookshelf in her new dorm room was Harry Potter and Samantha Power's memoir. Kelly wrote an essay about letting go of her youngest daughter for the New York Times and mentioned that bookshelf. Samantha Power's friend said to her, hey, that college kid has your book. And Samantha reached out on Instagram to Kelly. Now they had a human connection, and Samantha said yes. Without even trying, Kelly's daughter Claire had created a little thread of a bond between them. We're in her office, and I was feeling like there was a possibility that we could get off the talking points, because I really Uh liked her as a person, and she really liked me. So- 
Anyway, I could feel that there was an opening. And that's the, that's like a lesson in interviewing is like how you time the three questions you're slightly afraid to ask because uh-huh. they might answer or they might not. Yeah. And a thing about Samantha Power that I think is kind of meaningful is that she and her mother and her family left her father and moved to America without him because he had a terrible drinking problem. And he died in Ireland without them in her bedroom. And I know it because I read her book. She's, she's done the hard work of sharing it. And she's put it into the context of her life. And so it should be okay to ask. It's not like her. I heard a secret about her. But it made me wonder if that's where her compassion comes from and her ability to hold complexity, which is to say, like, if you're a woman trying to raise kids, you got to do what's right for your kids. And also, it will be very hard for all involved. And also, it might torture you to think about your father in Ireland. And also, it's very poignant that he died in your bedroom. And also, it might cause you a lifetime of chronic back pain, which she had mentioned. So in your memoir, you shared, you know, some really personal stuff about panic attacks, which I've Mm -hmm. had a few myself, and back pain and Mm -hmm. many miscarriages. Mm -hmm. You also said that you did some therapy. What did you learn in therapy that's useful information for the rest of us? Well, back pain is often not simply back pain. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) What I learned about myself is that I was carrying around a lot of unresolved questions about my own childhood, about loss. I was carrying a lot of guilt that I didn't even know I was carrying. I was a very self-aware and introspective person. And then once I went in and, and someone who knew what they were doing really started to probe, it just all kind of, and just, Purging that and understanding the role it was playing, I think, I think just was very, very cathartic, but also helped me understand why I was drawn to war zones and bad boys and uh-huh. all the rest. So I credit, you know, that deep dive into myself with, with much more of a sense of peace now at this stage of my life. So I feel really, really lucky. Do you ever feel And I like thought you're... now the whole interview will be received in a different way. Because before, she's like this superstar that you're like, she should win a Nobel Prize. And now she's a human being who's also a superstar who should win a Nobel Prize. But like if you don't, if you can't get that part of it in there, there's just a separation. For most people, they're listening and they're like, I can't even with this woman. Like she's so smart. She's so accomplished. She's so devoted. I can't relate. And then all of a sudden, she became a person. On every episode, I ask a guest to share an episode of their show that they either loved or found challenging to make. Kelly shared an interview with Dr. Helen Fisher. She's a biological anthropologist, she's a sex and relationships expert, and she's chief science advisor to Match.com. If you've taken a personality quiz on a dating site, it's probably the one that she wrote. When it comes to love, she's ubiquitous. Here's a taste of Helen Fisher telling Kelly about the research she conducted on the love lives of millennials. They're very serious. I'm crazy about the new, I mean, I call them the new Victorians because they're less sexual. They're extremely interested in career. They're very earnest lots, the young are today. I'm very impressed with them. 
Given that she's been interviewed over and over again, how could Kelly get something fresh and valuable? The key came down to the unusual way that she and her producer, Tammy Stedman, would frame the episode. I played Kelly's own introduction back to her. Welcome to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm Kelly Corrigan, and today I'm wondering about relationships, love, romance, sex, and how intellectual humility might make all those things much better. Whether it's a first date with someone you just met on the internet or a 25-year debate with a spouse you've been with since college, I'm wondering how can we show up in a more open, flexible, and humble way? She's been interviewed a lot. And her information is interesting, but I think most of the interviews that have been done with her have been far more literal. Tell me what you know about personality matching. Tell me what you know about staying in love. You found this other way in, talking about intellectual humility. What is intellectual humility? What got you interested in that? So we got interested in intellectual humility because it was a topic that came up through the Greater Good Science Center. Do you know the Greater Good Science Center? It's at UC Berkeley, and it's trying to use social science to educate the public on, you know, how to improve our own well-being. The idea, which felt so timely, given the state of American conversation, was what would happen in every arena and relationship in your life if you were constantly aware of this one thing, all Knowledge is partial. And that's the heart of intellectual humility, which is I don't know things. And if I, if I knew everything there was to know, I could reach a state of conviction. Short of that, I should be more curious than convicted. So I was loving the idea. I was loving the potential of circulating that idea. I mean, I've done 400 interviews in the last couple of years between PBS and the podcast. Wow. I know. It's a lot. Of every one of the ideas that has come through those conversations, intellectual humility has been the most sticky. I wanted to know how Kelly makes editorial decisions and who she's making them with. Is it a sizable team? How much does she rely on her producer, Tammy Stedman? It turns out it's a lot. So let me break down the process a little bit because I'm really interested, like having spent a lot of time in newsrooms and those editorial meetings where it's like, oh, we could do this or we could do that or no, that's a really bad idea. Take me through, like you you hear about intellectual humility, you get kind of hooked on the idea. Then I'm equally interested in the ideas that make it to air and the ideas that no, it just doesn't meet the bar for one of these big consequential ideas. Who's saying, yes, we should do it? We've been at it together for, you know, two years now. And she tells me it's only the two of us. We don't cast a wide net. We don't equivocate too long. We make quick decisions. And we produce so much content that not any given episode we're going to gnash our teeth over. So anyway, if Tammy says it's a good idea, we do it. If Tammy says she thinks the guests will work, we do it. If she doesn't, we just move on. I trust her completely. Like whatever she says, I'll do. Is there one that you proposed? You said we should do this big idea or this particular guest. And she was like, no. Where we part is that I could probably just talk to professors all day long. 
I love the way they talk. I like how articulate and specific they are in their communications. I like the detail that they bring to the conversation. I like how careful they are. Like they don't speak in bromides and idioms. They they say something very true and proven rather than snappy and Instagram ready. And she curbs that a little bit. Mm-hmm. She likes story. She's like, I want to meet mm-hmm. a person and hear their story from top to bottom. And that's how you end up with a Samantha Power type episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's how you end up with Helen, who you know gets into all of it. She'll tell you the whole story of her relationship. She'll tell you how they have two apartments. They don't live in the same place. She'll tell me about how she still goes out for girls' night. Like She, she gets personal because that's where information lands for people. It lands in the context of a of a person and their life. <laughs> and uh, so we have two apartments. Uh, we both live in New York. I live in Manhattan. It's a small apartment, but it's right next to Central Park and it works. And he's got a big apartment in the Bronx and I've got my own room in that apartment, but we go back and forth. And what's nice about it is two nights a week, I go out with my girlfriends. Tonight, I'm going out to an art exhibit and out to dinner with a couple of women. And tomorrow night, I'll probably go to the theater. And he loves to sit at home and eat pizza and read. And nobody's cheating on anybody. I had a kind of tough question I wanted to pose to Kelly because... Frankly, I I thought this interview with Helen Fisher really hits its stride about a third to halfway in, but that at first it was sort of a barrage of information from Helen. Take a listen to a clip from the early part of this interview. I wonder if you'll hear what I mean. And of course, that they're getting their education, and that takes many, many years. A lot of them are going to graduate school, and they want to put a career together before they settle down. Mm -hmm. And they think they've got enough time, and they're enjoying their youth instead of settling right into marriage and family. Uh, Divorce probably plays a role. Uh, World political instability probably plays a role. Actually, I think that a lot of the instability, certainly the pandemic, is driving them to settle down earlier, uh, not later. Wasn't there some huge jump in one of the questions you asked before the pandemic and after the pandemic? Yes, absolutely. And thank you for, you're, you're wonderful. You, <laughs> you're prepared. I really appreciate it. Yes, we know we ask about 200 questions and this is a trend question. And right before the pandemic in 2019, I asked the question, would you like to meet somebody who wants to marry? So as I was getting ready for this interview, I put a question out on LinkedIn and I said, what are your biggest problems with interviews? If you could ask one question, what do you want to know? And this guy, Frank Recepi, who writes a medium column about podcasts said, you know, there's a tension often between hosts and guests where the guest, they, they flood you with information. And of course, the host does not really want that because it's very hard to edit. It's not that interesting, et cetera. And my sense was that that's what Helen was doing right from the get-go. Like, she's a character, but she was like, let me tell you this data and these statistics and this number, and very fast, and she doesn't take a a breath. Was that your sense? I don't remember it that way at all. Uh-huh. I got such a kick out of her, and I admired her so much for her. I mean, I just loved her energy. I thought, this is amazing. Like, God, if I am 77 years old and have this much juice Mm -hmm. and this much enthusiasm for my work, Mm -hmm. 
like, Yahoo, you are my new role model. But the other the other thing, I mean, that goes to to how much time you set aside for the interview. Oh yeah. Because things get better. Like people can't stay in that state for very long. So they kind of wear themselves out in the first 20 minutes and then they start to slow down and then they'll tell you a little bit more and and then they kind of forget a little bit, you know, they kind of let go of their stance, their professional stance. And that's mm-hmm. the advantage of having an hour instead of a half an hour. And what you did uh, is very interesting. She remarks, she says, wow, you're so prepared. <laughs> I know. You know, what do you think this says about the sort of state of most interviews? There's so much slop, I can't get over it. There, there's such low barriers to starting a podcast that you just really don't have to have any practice or any preparation or any particular expertise to just like flip on the mic and start yakking. When I'm doing it, I'm thinking, what podcasts drive me bananas and what podcasts am I so grateful for? So that my own tastes to some degree, are telling me whether it's working. Mm -hmm. So that's who I'm producing for, is people who have the same criteria and taste that I do, and that's plenty of people. I don't need to talk to everybody. You know, neither do you. And so tell tell me, a lot of people were like, how do you prep? What's, What's enough prep? What's too much prep? Well, there's a lot of information about Helen that's readily available. I like to listen because I like to get their rhythm. In my head, I like Mm -hmm. to hear their voice. I like to hear like how long their average answer is. I like to Mm -hmm. hear if they're an um, ah, stutterer, restarter, or if they're pretty smooth top to bottom from the beginning of a sentence to the end of a sentence. So that's my favorite way. And then at some point, I'm kind of dumping things into a Google Doc. And then the kind of last thing I do is just thin that out and try to really see Mm -hmm. like if a person listening was going to get three things out of this what would I want them to get? But my big advantage that I'm so surprised more people don't do is that at the end of every episode, long after the recording and the edit, I give the listener my takeaways. And there's often eight, mm-hmm. 10, 12 things that either they explained something that I understood, but they explained it in such a memorable way that it helped it really like click in for me and like become memorable. I would put like an aha in a takeaway list. I would put a stat that's really like was impacted me in a big way. I'm assuming that everybody listening is hustling around as much as I am. There's no way that anyone's sitting there listening and entirely focused on what you're saying with a pen and a pencil in their hand. So I'm trying to give that to them at the end, which is here's my takeaways. And then every Wednesday, we email out our takeaways to our listeners. Is there too much prep? Is there a way to do too much? Yes, especially for PBS because it's extremely costly to shoot a PBS episode. There's a crew of 10 people. We often have to go somewhere. I just shot one in Boston on Monday. They're setting up, you know, lights, camera, action. We have four camera shoots. Like it's a very elaborate production. And because of that, I feel I'm over-preparing because I it's hanging on me so much, like whether it works or not, and there's no reshooting. And so because the stakes are higher, much, much higher than um, recording a podcast, I feel that drives me to show up with like 18 pages. 
which is just terrible. Mm. Like you should have a page. On the flip side, almost every single time I do an interview, there's something that surfaces the very day of the interview that makes it into the final cut and makes it way better. And I don't know what that is. It's like serendipity. It's like that last peek at their book or like the I'm flipping through and something catches my eye. Or it might be some kind of subconsciousness on my part where I'm looking for the big pieces. And then by the time the morning of comes, I'm more open to like something small but meaningful. Yeah. Give me an example. I didn't know that Brian Stevenson played the piano until like the morning of the shoot. And and him playing the piano is such an important part of every day of his life. Here's another thing I didn't know that came up the morning of the shoot. 150 guys on death row have his cell phone number. That's who they call. He's like their family. He's their brother. He's their priest. He's their father. He's their son if they're really old. So you think about what it would feel like to be carrying 150 people's fate. And then you think about how much you would need to play piano. Like to step away from all that and to make something beautiful and to be alone inside like a cloud of music. And it, it just was, to me, it was like this incredible unlock of these two disparate pieces of information that to me seems so related. So what did you do? I went right there. I brought it right up with him. And then, amazingly, on the set where we were shooting, there was a baby grand piano. And between shots, he went over. And I was like, would you like to play piano? Like, would that be relaxing for you? And he's like, I would love to. So then he's playing the piano. Then all the cameramen are like, turning towards him. And so it's actually a beautiful part of the episode is when I'm asking him about it, we cut to the B-roll of him playing piano on a break. When I play the piano, it's the one thing that takes me out of my head. It's just fully engaging. So I love being kind of just step out of my life into this world of music. And I'm curious about every piano I see. It's a bad, bad habit, but I want to know, well, what what does that one sound like? And what does that one sound like? You just have to touch every piano you it's pass. Just, you just, I just feel like it's saying something. I want to hear what it's saying. Brian, Brian, come over. Um, and, tell me more. You know, it was like the most special thing that happened. And, and it's not in any other Brian Stevenson interview. And that, you know, that's how you differentiate from 60 Minutes or CBS Sunday Morning or whoever else has, you know, interviewed Brian Stevenson, which is, pretty much everybody. I mean, I'm sure he's been interviewed 1,000 times. And so you have to be open. I mean, there's a skill there, right? I can think of how I would describe that that skill, which may be so intuitive, it doesn't feel like a skill, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. How would you describe that? Well, I mean, if you want to start a podcast because you want to make money or get famous, uh, there are better ways. If you want to start a podcast because you want permission to pursue your curiosities, there you are. This is the right job for you. The purest motivation for podcasting is to have permission to pursue your own curiosities. And if it exists, I think it will be very evident to the listeners. And if it doesn't, and you're just kind of into like, 
playing the game and telling people at cocktail parties you have a podcast or, you know, the 19 other reasons why people do this, I think that too will be evident. When you're curious, when you're observant, you're sort of gotten to that point where you've done all the hard, you know, tactile research, it's done on paper, something does shift and you notice things. You're open to it. Like, I don't think serendipity happens just because it's, I don't know, uh, woo-woo. You're open to noticing. Like the worst interviews, everyone knows this, but the worst interviews are where it's like, I have my 18 questions and I got to ask my 18 questions. Like, I can't really veer from this. So someone will say something like somewhat fascinating with like a couple different openings where you could dive back in and take it a little further. And then they'll say, interesting. So my next question is, and it's like, (laughs) oh my God, don't leave that on the table. That's where the action is. Okay, so lightning round questions. Are you a person who is so curious and interested in the world that you just want to do everything? Yes. Yes. I mean, Tammy has this terrible job, which is, uh uh-oh, she went on a train ride and now she has 14 ideas. You know, like there are certain environments that are super uh, rich for me in terms of generating ideas. Like, God help me if I go to some kind of thing. Like, I went to Aspen Ideas and I came home with, 14 different collaborations that I wanted to do with 14 different people. And Tam's like, okay, let's write them down. Let's try to put them in order. Let's see how much they're going to cost. So yes, I'm, I, I have so many things I want to do. I want to make a movie. I want to make a musical. I want to do a live conference. I, you know, I want to go on tour, I, everything. Do you have a dream guest for Kelly Corrigan Wonders or Tell Me More who you have not talked to yet? I mean, I have tons uh, Michelle Obama, Dave Chappelle. There's all, I also have dream collaborators. Like I, I kind of, I would love to have like a different co-host each week. So I interviewed Dan Harris. I interviewed Krista Tippett. I interviewed Rain Wilson. Like all those guys were just so fun to talk to and were so spiritually aligned that it made me want to work with them again. I often have that feeling which is I, I can't wait to interview you again or I can't wait to do another thing with you, a live event or whatever it might be. Kelly, thank you so much for all your time and such fascinating answers. It's just been such a delight. Thanks. Thanks for having me. At the end of every episode, I give you some takeaways. Here are today's. You'll find more in our Substack newsletter, also called Sound Judgment. One, the thing we are asking for when we put our podcast, our book, our speech, our film out there is attention. And there is no more exquisite currency than attention. So how can we reveal something or elicit something from our guest that will make the listener feel like the time they spent with us was worth it? That's Kelly's guiding principle. Two, Carefully time the three questions you're a little afraid to ask. Don't ask your toughest ones first and feel for the opening like Kelly did with Samantha Power. Three, the purest motivation to start a podcast is to follow your curiosity. When it's there, it's evident to the listener and it's evident when it's not there. And four, Kelly knows when an interview is going great, when she's saying something she hasn't said before or when she knows that her guest is saying something they haven't said before. 
And now I'm excited to share part three of my sponsored series with Paul Reese Mandel of Signal Hill Insights. Storytellers, he's helping you and me clearly understand whether we're succeeding with our listeners and how we can serve them better. You need to hear this because his information will lead to more renewals and also more new launches if you serve clients. Paul, it's great to see you. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. So it just so happens that this episode is the end of this season of Sound Judgment. Now, we've already decided Sound Judgment is coming back in January, so I'm doing another season. But can I actually measure what content my listeners like and want more of and what to leave out or what new content to add? Absolutely. So once you're surveying a listener, you can ask them questions about that content and how they feel about it. If you're doing this where you're just asking them in the program or asking them on social media, you don't always know exactly what they've heard. But when we do a uh, branded content lift study, then we can know exactly what listeners heard because we've ensured that they've listened to a specific episode of of the series. What would you say like the top two or three most important questions are to ask? I mean, you definitely want to ask, did the podcast hold your attention? Did you learn something? And was it entertaining? Did you like the host? And then you can also ask questions about sort of the content in general. You give people like a bunch of statements that say, it was boring. Do you agree with that? It's just okay. It was better than other podcasts, right? And you and you want to ask both positive and negative, even though we don't love to hear the negative, but maybe that is a warning sign, right? That maybe folks mm-hmm. said, yeah, I learned something, but it was a little dry. It was more instructional rather than entertaining. Tell me more about how to measure what matters when it comes to generating word of mouth. You can ask people, would you recommend it? They'll tell you. Folks don't want to recommend things they don't like. So we ask those questions as well as we ask questions like, would you listen to another episode? Will you come back? Was the content compelling enough to drive you to say, hey, no, I want I want another episode of this podcast. How big a budget do I need to engage a research firm on a listener study? The first thing I'm going to say is to think about the research as part of the budget. Just like you would budget for some labor or if there's going to be travel involved, think about the research as part of that. So generally speaking, if your overall budget is in the six figures, now you start being in a range where you can build in this sort of branded podcast lift survey. So build it in so that you know you'll be delivering it and you're ready to answer those questions at the end. Gotcha. And just to clarify, we're talking about a six-figure budget to produce the podcast overall. Correct. What's one piece of advice for creators who don't have six-figure budgets? Think about it in advance. What are the objectives for this content? Why does it exist? What do you hope listeners get from it? And then two, what does the brand want to get out of it? Or the sponsor, what do they want to get out of it? And think about how might I answer those questions? Just for fun, Paul, how could I study whether my listeners like this new research segment of Sound Judgment? Well, I mean, you could give them a survey. You could ask them to email you. Often, if you want to increase your survey responses or emails, you can incentivize people. The incentives can be that you are going to answer them, that maybe you're going to tally up 
the responses and you'll report back on what listeners think about it all. And sometimes you have something to give away. It could be a chance at something. It doesn't have to be a one for one, but you know, maybe there's some listeners who would love to win a little consult with you. Oh, I like that. That's a great idea. And Paul, where can listeners go to get more information? We really think research gets you to yes. So we hope to get you to yes, maybe bigger yeses, and really get to that renewal. So we've set up a special email newsletter just for this topic, for measuring branded content. So go over to measureyourpodcast.com. Completely free. We just want to help you learn how to measure the impact of what you make so that you get to make more. And I've learned quite a bit from measureyourpodcast.com. What I have always appreciated about you, Paul, is that you're very educational. And I know that everybody will feel the same way. Thank you. I just love podcasts and I want to help everyone who's making them. That's all for today and all for this season. We're taking a short break for the holidays. We'll be back with a new season in January. Thanks to my guest, Kelly Corrigan. Follow both of her shows, the podcast Kelly Corrigan Wonders and the PBS TV show Tell Me More. You'll find the links plus links to her books in our show notes. If you like this episode, you'll love my conversation with Laura Joyce Davis. That episode, pulling apart her fun, touching show, Shelter in Place, was Season 1, Episode 5. Again, the links in our show notes. If someone recommended Sound Judgment to you, please follow the show now and please share this episode with one friend. Sound Judgment is a production of Podcast Allies. If you've been looking for a listener-first, story-first production partner, get in touch. Our contact info is in our show notes and at soundjudgmentpodcast.com. We'd love to work with you. Sound Judgment is produced by me, Elaine Appleton-Grant. Audrey Nelson is our production assistant. Sound design and editing by Andrew Perella. Podcast management by Tina Basir. And gratitude to the rafts of producers, editors, sound designers, and other team members behind every great story. Without you, the world would be a less beautiful place. 